Okay, so if you have a Bible, uh, good for you. If you don't, shame on you. Just kidding. But uh, bring one next time. Uh, there's, except for the comfortable chairs in the back, all the rest of the pews have Bibles in them. And if you don't have a Bible, use one of those. But uh, we're going to need you to open your Bible or borrow one there that's near you and open it to Romans 6, if, you're, if you've closed it, and then also to um, Psalm 119, verse 80. We're going to conclude our time in the uh, Yod stanza this morning with verse 80. But we're going to spend equal amount of time, if not more, in Romans 6, which is why uh, I asked it to be read this morning. Uh, one verse that will help me begin our time together in the Word is verse 17 of chapter 6 of Romans. Let me read it for you again. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. You who were once slave to sin have become obedient from the heart. Now, is there a difference in your mind or in reality between obedience and obedience from the heart? Yes, probably, most likely. The author of Psalm 119, as you know, has often asked that God would teach him his ways, teach him his statutes, teach him his uh, word. And this is like every single stanza. We've come across this, haven't we? Teach me your word, O Lord. So, this particular verse, Psalm 119, verse 80, he throws us a little change up. And I want you to notice it. All right, he says this. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. So instead of asking God to directly control his conduct, he asks God to deal with the source of his conduct, his heart. This is important, Christian friend, that you understand this, that you know where he's coming from. He's asking that the word of God your statutes, verse 80, would find a resting place in my heart so that that would work its way out into my daily conduct. He knows there's no hope for any change in the conduct unless his heart has been affected by grace. This isn't dutiful obedience, but obedience and affection from a place of delight, a place of Hope. He, he asks that his heart be blameless, not his conduct particularly. I don't think there's any doubt that he desires godly conduct. I mean, he's already asked for that numerous times. But here he's saying, God, bypass everything and get to my heart. This is a yearning for a pure heart. The actions that he's asking flow from this heart are not dutiful performance. They're not, they're not from a place of formalism or legalism or guilt even. And this struck me as I was studying this week that this is what we want for you, Sun Valley Church. This is what I want for you. A conduct that honors God but that flows from a blameless heart. We, we, we want to be obedient people to our God who are wooed by grace, not guilt. So, so how can we access this blameless heart? How can we make it true for us? If this blameless conduct flows out of the spring of a blameless heart, how do I get that? By the way, you can't maintain blameless conduct without a blameless heart. It's impossible. Professing Christ as Savior is a wonderful thing, but it will always and only be confirmed by a growing desire for a blameless heart that results in a blameless conduct. As parents, we are thrilled with the profession of faith in Christ that our children make, aren't we? 
But what are we doing as parents? We're always looking for the character of Christ growing in their lives. Profession of faith is one thing, but identifying Christ is what we're after, isn't it? I think it is. It's important to remember that a change of surroundings or a change of company or a change of circumstances cannot in and of themselves bring about a change of heart. It might be a good idea to change your surroundings, to change your friends and so forth. But ultimately our blameless conduct flows out of a blameless heart that only comes from an act of mercy and grace from a blameless Savior. No amount of experience, feeling, feelings, gifts, talents, knowledge will bring about a blameless heart required to produce blameless conduct. Think about Judas or Balaam, for example. Did each of them not have enough knowledge? They had plenty of knowledge. Judas had exceptional knowledge of Christ. And it seems Balaam knew God fairly well as, as well. But they both were saturated with worldly desires and ended up demonstrating their fault-filled heart versus their blameless heart. Today I want to look closely at the idea that Psalm 119.80 identifies as a blameless heart. I want to show you the nature of this blameless heart and how you can develop and strengthen the blameless heart that God has given you, hoping and assuming that he has. So let's look first of all at the nature of the blameless heart, starting in uh, Psalm 119. The verse says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. The Septuagint, that is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates it this way, Let my heart be without spot or blemish. So this implies, both of these translations imply that the grace of God has had a genuine influence on my soul. It has changed me on the inside that affects my external conduct. There is no blamelessness or true godliness without a work of the perfectly blameless one. I say true godliness because there is such a thing as false godliness. All of us are acquainted with this because occasionally, some more than others, we practice false godliness, don't we? Paul called it an appearance of godliness when he spoke to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. He says, beware of those who appear to be godly. That's the inauthentic exercise of quote-unquote faith. Paul said, beware of them. And so, in order to try to help you understand the nature of a blameless heart, I want to begin by explaining to you what it's not. And get those things out of the way so we can talk about in a minute what it is. What a blameless heart is not, first of all, it's not shallow. A blameless heart avoids shallow appearances. Paul warned Timothy about these who practice shallow religion, uh, the appearance of godliness, the, the show, the external, the, the, the person that will sit here and wave their arms during the, the song, worship service and then walk out and mistreat their family on the way to the car. The kind of godliness that Paul is speaking about that I think the psalmist wants to avoid is like the apple I bit into a couple weeks ago. It looked nice and shiny and bright and fulfilling and I, like Eve, took a big bite only to find that it was rotten to the core, brown, gross. I'm not certain if it's worm infested, but I spit it out. What's with Costco's apples? I mean, that's the kind of godliness Paul's talking about. It's a show. Outside it looks fine. But the inside, it's another story. Those who have an appearance of godliness may seem to be such as long as you keep your distance, as long as you don't take a bite, as long as you don't get too close to them, as long as your interaction remains in the church lobby. Anybody can look good for 15 minutes, right? Friends, our, our ongoing 
encouragement to you to be connected at Sun Valley Church by way of our small group ministry is not because we want bigger groups. It's not because we want more groups. It's because we believe that participation in an authentic group of believers exposes and heals false Christianity. You can't spend time with genuine believers and not be affected. Oh, you can remain fake in a small group, no doubt about it, but it's much more difficult. God uses the rubbing of shoulders, the rubbing of lives together to bring about spiritual growth and authentic transformation. Remaining on the periphery, that is, on the outside, giving your nods, is a sure way to impede your spiritual growth and remain deceived about the authenticity of your faith. A lot of people are too afraid to get connected for what it might reveal about their faith. You see, a shallow heart is this very thing. It's external. And the scary thing is that this can happen without even your knowledge. You may believe that your faith is genuine simply because you're so disconnected from genuine believers. I mean, you can do the physical, the external things. You can be here, you can sing, you can read your Bible, you can smile, you can shake your hands, and you can go back to your ungodly life and think it's okay. And by the way, thousands of churches are filled with these kind of people. And I'm not saying there aren't people like that here. There probably are. A shallow heart can be identified in many ways. It's a lot like a chameleon. You know those cute little animals that can change the way they look by their environment? They, the church chameleon looks like Christians when they're at church. And then when they go to work, they look like non-Christians. They adapt nicely. A close look at different areas of your life can reveal these kind of things. One that's a little tricky is the area of finance, money. A, a close examination of your money, how you use it, how you prioritize its use in your family can identify a shallow heart. Genuine godliness affects the whole person you know, including your money. No one but you and maybe your spouse knows the details of your financial practices. A shallow heart in the area of finances is deceptive because you don't really have to do anything to be guilty of having a shallow heart in the area of your finances. I'm going to give you an example that might help you understand what I'm saying. Now, I'm going to try to share this with you in such a way as to not induce guilt. That is my goal. Uh, I have practiced this numerous times, but I can't control how you feel about what I'm going to say. So do your best to consider my exhortation from a platform of grace, not guilt. Okay? And I'm serious about that, even though it sounds kind of odd and funny. Um, being grace-driven towards godliness is much more effective anyways, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> um, being encouraged to change through guilt is a poor motivator. Guilt may accomplish the same kind of things that grace would, but it has no lasting effect and never brings any joy. So we're going to try to approach this thing um, in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. Um, in the past, at Sun Valley Church, we changed this, I think, eight or ten years ago. We used to require small group participation to be a member here. You remember those days, some of you old-timers? People have been here forever. Uh, we used to require small group participation. You couldn't be a member unless you're a small group participant. We changed that. You want to know why? Of this very thing right here. We want obedience that comes from the heart, not from compulsion. What I'm about to say, my desire is that any obedience that it may initiate comes from the heart, not from compulsion, not from something I might say that would make you feel guilty. Okay, so please 
listen to me in those terms. Let me try to share this point with you to help you understand it, this, this, the idea of shallow godliness, a shallow heart from a perspective of grace. If I were your neighbor and saw your house on fire and came and pulled you and your children out of the fire and saved your lives, you probably wouldn't grouch too much if I asked you to help my kids in their homework next week, would you? No, not if you're a normal person. You would probably be glad to help my kids with their homework if I actually saved the lives of your kids this week. You might even offer to, I don't know, mow my lawn in addition to helping my kids with their homework. This is something that would be very normal for a person whose life had been saved by their neighbor. Well, a couple of months ago, we asked Sun Valley Church to participate in raising funds to pave the parking lot across the street, which is paved and you are using currently. To date, we've raised less than 10% of what we asked to raise. Now, I know all of us have, and don't have rather, the ability to, to give uh, more than we normally do, but most of us have some ability in that department. Uh, we do our best at Sun Valley Church to not ask for money or to talk about money much because we want your giving to be obedience from the heart, not compulsion. Does that make sense? We don't want external pressure to cause you to give. What is that accomplishing? Nothing. Now, if I stopped right here, you would probably, and move to the next point, you would probably go away feeling guilty if you haven't participated in the offering that we've asked to give towards the parking lot. But like I said, I want to approach it from a standpoint of grace and blamelessness or obedience from the heart. And so continue listening. The parking lot paving was done because of the fact that we have people who have struggled to walk across it because of their physical condition. It became dangerous for some. Uh, these who struggle like this are God's children, part of God's family. Now, think about the neighbor who saved you from the fire. Your response to that neighbor would be blameless from the heart and joy-filled, wouldn't it? To help them, help their children with their homework? Of course it would. In the same way, God's gracious goodness towards us by literally saving us from eternal fire will motivate our joyous and abundant response. That's grace, not guilt, that causes you to want to participate in these kind of things. Because God has done so much for us, like pulling our children out of the fire, the eternal fire, our mindset is one of looking for opportunities to demonstrate our gratitude and joy for all that he has done to us and for us. We want to respond from the heart. We can actually help some of God's children have easier access to our building. We can actually encourage those who are yet to know Christ to come and hear the message of the gospel of grace. We can actually have a practical participation in that event. This is gracious. This is joyful. This is, I think, powerful motivation because it requires obedience from the heart. Remember, a blameless heart is not a shallow heart. Secondly, a blameless heart is not a temporary heart or superficial heart. It's not something that, that goes away with the changing of the hour. It's like the parable of the sower where Jesus described true conversion. You remember that parable? Versus false conversion. He talked about a farmer who threw seed out and some of the seed grew up fast because it was in shallow ground, but then it died. Some of the seed grew up fast and then was choked out by weeds. Temporary. It wasn't Genuine. It wasn't authentic. It wasn't a blameless situation. A blameless heart won't be temporary in their experience of God. It will last. Those whose godliness is only temporary and superficial seem to be affected by the word, 
They seem to be joyful. They seem to be here. They seem to be participating. They seem to even be responsive to the word at times and fellowship. But it seems that these effects don't last for someone whose heart is not blameless. The evidence for spiritual life seems to fade over time. It's like the difference between a puddle that has formed because of a rainstorm and a stream that is fed by a mountain spring. A hot day will dry up that puddle. Will a hot day dry up a mountain spring? No. Why? Because it has an endless source. It's not temporary. Paul said the authentic blameless Christian is indwelt by Christ, not just externally affected by his presence, his passing presence. If your heart isn't blameless, it will be affected by an ongoing fondness of the world. You will continue to be drawn by the world and overpowered by the world and prioritize the world over Christ. You remember John 6, don't you? Where thousands and thousands of people were following Christ and were temporarily affected by his presence. Remember, he fed them, their hunger went away. Pretty good effect. But then after everything was picked up, how many remained? Twelve and one of those was a fake. Only 11 of some experts, scholars say 25,000 people, only 11 believed. Only 11 had a blameless heart. See, a blameless heart isn't a temporary heart that's, that's affected by a passing vision of Christ, even if it's authentic, like here in this building, during a sermon. No, it's, it's lasting. It'll be here next week and the week after and the week you die. The 11 that remained with Christ in John 6, when they were asked why they were still there, you remember what their answers were? Where are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? So that's what a blameless heart is not. We could continue, but we need to get through this at some point. A blameless heart is not shallow. It's not temporary. So what is it? Well, I want to, I want to kind of... Um, talk about the word blameless before I get into the evidences of a blameless heart so that uh, you'll understand what I'm saying here. Uh, there are two ways that you can be considered blameless, and both of them are in Romans 6. So if you have your Bible there, now turn back to Romans 6, okay? And we'll spend a little bit of time looking at what, you heard, what we heard read earlier. In Romans 6, like I said, we see both of these uh, ideas of blamelessness. The first is positional blameless. You know, as you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, he repeatedly calls Christians, the recipients of his letters, what? Holy saints. And I'm pretty sure, I'm not a genius, nor a first century scholar, but I'm pretty sure those guys who received those letters were sinners. So how come Paul is calling them saints and holy. Well, because positionally, before God, the judge, they are saints. They are holy. They are positionally righteous. Or to use the terminology of Psalm 119.80, they are positionally blameless. Look at verse 3 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who, were, who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? I want, you to, I want to tell you something here. Uh, there is no water in Romans 6. It's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about identifying with Christ. It's talking about being one with Christ. The word baptizo can also be translated water baptism or identification with. And in Romans 6, that's what it means. It's a passive verb here in verse 3, meaning those of us who have been identified with Christ had nothing to do with that identification. 
God did it on your behalf and my behalf. We were just watching the game. And the Holy Spirit came up in the stands and grabbed us and said, you're playing. That's what happened. That's what Romans 6, 3 is talking about. Same in verse 5. You have been united. According to Paul, we understand that everyone who has embraced Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, is clothed, present tense, with the righteousness of Christ. An alien righteousness, a blamelessness that's not their own, which positionally puts us in a good place with the judge, the God of the universe. We are clothed with Jesus' righteousness. God sees the righteousness of his dear son in us. We are positionally perfect because of the work of Christ. His death has paid the penalty of our sin. His life has been credited to our account. So now if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation before God. You are perfect in his sight, even though you continue to daily struggle with sin. It's not like God doesn't know you're a sinner. He just sees you through the glasses of Jesus Christ at this point. Legally, all of our sins have been paid for by Jesus' death. Jesus' perfection, his holiness, his blamelessness has met all of God's requirements and that credit has been given or put on our, or deposited in our account. Christian, But there's also a second kind of blamelessness that we see here in Romans 6. It's called practical blamelessness or practical righteousness, whatever you want to call it. It's it's one of the Bible's greatest passages on practical holiness, practical righteousness. Romans 6 tells us about the importance of blameless living, the method of blameless living. Let not sin reign in your body. Verse 12, look at it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You're not a slave to sin. You don't have to obey sin anymore. You've been put to death with Christ in that regard. You can actually say no. This is practical blamelessness. This is actually not chewing out your kid. This is actually loving your wife, sacrificing for her, This is actually blessing your family with your presence versus the alternative. You're not letting your mouth, this instrument, do things that will harm your brother or sister, mom or dad, or small group member. The prayer of Psalm 119 verse 80 is a prayer for practical holiness, practical blamelessness that flows out of positional blamelessness. To help you understand the importance of this prayer in your own life, I want to explain to you what a blameless heart looks like. All right? So we have positional blamelessness, which is because of the work of Christ. We have practical blamelessness, which flows out of that. To everybody who truly knows Christ, they will begin to act like him. Okay? So let's look at the the evidences or the uh, distinguishing marks of a blameless heart. The first is this, it's receptive. A blameless heart is a receptive heart. Verse 80 says that the heart is blameless, what? In your statutes. You see that there in the verse? It's blameless in obedience to God's word. That's pretty practical. That's a fairly evident element of a blameless heart. Let me give you a practical illustration of this. Do you accept and receive joyfully the word preached and taught to you? Or is there always some sense of resistance, a a desire to argue or to defend or to think differently about what's being preached or taught, whatever setting you find yourself in? Do you accept the word preached to you, taught to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul has some thoughts on this for the Thessalonian church and believers. 
He said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word, they received it, they had a receptive heart. Listen to what they did. When they received the word of God, um, which you heard from us, you accepted it. You received it. Not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. The blameless heart is a receptive heart. You want to hear the word. You desire to receive the word. You desire to respond to the word. Secondly, a blameless heart is a shaped heart. It not only readily receives the word, but is shaped by the word. Does your character value the word? Do your values reflect those of Jesus? How about Paul? How about notable Christians throughout church history? Do your character and values reflect these people? Does the Word of God shape, on, shape you on how you think, how you act, what you prioritize, what's important to you, what's not? Does the Word of God play any role in that in your experience? Peter thought it should in 2 Peter 1.4. He says this by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that he's talking about the Word of God so that through them... Through the word, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter thought the word of God ought to shape the people of God. We ought to be growing in Christ's likeness because of our intake of the word. Our, our beings, our character ought to be shaped more and more, day by day, week after week, year after year, by the continually and consistent intake of the word of God. It ought to be having an effect is what Peter's saying. Paul had similar ideas when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, another idea about seeing the Lord in Scripture, beholding the glory, the glory of the Lord, we see it in the Scriptures. What's it doing to us? It's transforming us into His image, one degree at a time. It's shaping us moment by moment, day by day. Do you sense this? Do you look more like Jesus now than you did a year ago? Ten years ago? Someone sitting next to you ought to identify these things for you. Next, the, the, obedient, the, the blameless heart's an obedient heart. It's, it's not only a heart that is receptive and shaped by the Word, it's obedient to the Word. This is a, a nuanced difference to the first two, but let me try to just come out and say it so that we don't miss things by assumption. Are you obeying more than you were last year? Or is it no change? Is there anything you can identify that you're committed to now that you weren't a year ago? Spiritually speaking, serving, participating, giving, praying. Is there anything now that's different in your daily patterns or even your thought process that weren't the case five years ago, two years ago, one year ago? Do you have a blameless heart? A blameless heart is a receptive heart, a shaped heart, an obedient heart. I've got one more for you. Uh, it's not in the outline, so you're going to have to write a little bit more. And this came uh, out of my reviewing of the sermon yesterday. So, um, just so you know, I don't write my sermons on Saturday night. I do this earlier in the week, but I reviewed it on Saturday night. And it seems it's not uncommon that the Holy Spirit brings something up that somehow I missed during the week. And here it is. And, and it comes by, and let me just tell you how, how it happens. I, I'm reviewing my sermon, and usually I have the, this come to mind. So what? Who cares about this sermon? What difference does it make? And so I asked that question again of myself yesterday afternoon and this came to mind. A blameless heart, here's the value if you need to have something to walk out with. It's valuable to God. 
a blameless heart. God values that in his people. God actually smiles on those of us who pursue blamelessness. He cares. 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. I can't say it any clearer than that. God highly values a blameless heart, not just positional, but practical blamelessness. He desires that we discipline ourselves to kill sin, to grow in godliness, to become more like Christ on a daily basis. He cares about that. Listen to what the, the, the teacher says from Proverbs 11, verse 20. Those of a crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Do you want to be a delight to God? Nurture your blameless heart. You might ask, but what if I fail, Pastor John? I'm, I'm really good at that. What if my desire is to be blameless, but I just have an ongoing struggle with sin that seems to get the best of me? A lot. Well, this takes us back to our conversations that we've had earlier in this chapter, Psalm 119, that conversation of trajectory. If you were to line up your life in all the peaks and valleys, which direction would your life be pointing? More Godward or more selfward? More heavenward or more earthward? What is the trajectory of your life? Just get down and look, get all the peaks and see which direction they're going. Is your life aiming Godward or selfward? If there is no question, Christian friend, especially you sensitive Christians, that you're going to struggle, that you're going to fail, that you're going to lose some battles and significant ones. The question is, what direction are you heading? Not what did you do yesterday? Which direction is your life heading? Friends, God delights in a blameless heart. And think, think this through with me. If God desires and delights in a blameless heart, do you think he's going to put some help at our disposal? Yes, is the answer. Remember, God is good, verse 68. God actually is good. He wants you to succeed. He's committed to your success more than you are. God wants you to succeed, so he's going to encourage. He's going to strengthen. He's going to assist us in this divine endeavor to become blameless. So a blameless heart is valuable to God. Secondly, it's valuable to us. You know that having a blameless heart is of value to you as a human being? First of all, do you know what brings shame? Notice again in verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I may be not put to shame. Evidently, if you're not one of a blameless heart, there is shame involved in that, at least before God. And I'm going to argue before man also here in a second. But there is shame in not having a blameless heart before God. It's called sin. Were Adam and Eve ashamed in the garden? Yes. And it wasn't so much because they were naked. It's because they knew they were naked. It's not like they were ashamed of their physical bodies. They were ashamed of their sin that exposed the fact that they knew they were, they were naked. They were ashamed because they had sinned. There was a shame that comes with sin before a perfect God, one who judges. But with the gospel, with Jesus Christ, he wipes that out, doesn't he? Yes. He takes the shame associated with sin and wipes it off the table. It's been, the biblical word is forgiven. It's been forgiven, wiped clean, a new beginning. Well, what happens to my sin that I commit tomorrow? Well, Jesus died before you were born. 
And his death covers all your sin, past, present, and future. He wipes away your shame, period. And let me tell you something. You will sin tomorrow. Doesn't mean you should get used to it. It simply means you should acknowledge it and confess it and run back to Christ. Secondly, it alleviates not only shame from God, but alleviates shame between men, between us, between people. Our natural actions without grace are shameful. Paul described it as hurting, devouring one another. This is our default. We're really good at this. You don't have to train your children to be selfish. We're natural pros in this department. I can be really good at being self-centered, ornery, um, you name it. No, don't name it. Let me get through with the sermon first. You can talk to me after the sermon. I'm sure there's things to talk about. But we're good at this by nature. We're good at being shameful towards one another. Aren't we? Yes. But enter the gospel, stage left. What happens? A blameless heart works its way out into blameless conduct. Conduct is how you and I relate to one another. If the gospel has found a resting place in my heart, I can forgive your offenses and you can forgive mine, right? If the gospel has worked its way into my heart and out of my heart, I can overlook the things that make me angry. And hopefully you can too. It wipes away the shame that we may experience because of our failings with one another. I can be gracious and forgiving to you because I know that I'm a sinner forgiven by grace. And vice versa. It cleans up the shame that exists between us if we truly understand grace. So grace is, I mean, uh, this blamelessness or blameless heart is valuable to God and it's valuable to us. Let me conclude our time together now with the second point, the strengthening of a blameless heart. This prayer is that, verse 80. This is a prayer that God would strengthen his blameless heart. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. May I walk, may my conduct flow out of this blameless heart that you've given me so that I will not be put to shame. This is a prayer that God would strengthen his blameless heart. So, real quickly, what are some ways that we can strengthen a blameless heart? If you're in Christ, you have a blameless heart, positionally, and the point of, of transformation, sanctification, is moving that positional blameless into practical blameless. So, it's, God is working on me, he's working on you, we're becoming more like Jesus, right? How can we strengthen that, encourage that, deepen that process? Well, what's the verse say? May my heart be blameless in your statutes. Love your Bible. Love the statutes of God. You see, God uses his word, friends, to accomplish his purposes in your life. Do you love the Bible that you possess? Can you tell by looking at it that it's been read? Nothing worse sitting next to somebody and you're told to open your Bible and your Bible won't open to that page because they're all stuck together. It's never been opened there before. Like, <laughs> Someone spilled something on my Bible. It usually opens right up to that. You know. Do you love your Bible? Do you use your Bible? Pray Psalm 119.80. Is that, do you pray? Ask God to give you a blameless heart like, the, like this guy did? Are you interested in God participating in your sanctification? In your growth in godliness? In your becoming blameless like Jesus? 
Pray. Ask God to do this for you. Get to know next the blameless one. Who might that be? That's Jesus, right? So love the Bible, verse 80. Pray, Psalm verse 80, 119 verse 80. Get to know the blameless one who is behind the scenes of this verse, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15 to his disciples, right before he's going to leave them, he said, hey, remain in me. Abide in me. Do you remain in Christ? Where is he found? He's found in the, in the scriptures. He's accessible through prayer. Jesus said, abide in me. Jesus in Revelation 3 said that we need to fear spiritual decay. When Jesus was speaking to the churches of Asia Minor, he was saying, fear spiritual decay. Don't drift off. Be, be cabled to the dock. Love the Bible. Pray Psalm 119 verse 80. Get to know the blameless one. Spend your days thinking about Christ, praying to Christ, reading of Christ. When was the last time you read one of the four Gospels that are simply a biography of Jesus? Well, I'm on a Bible reading plan. I can't do that. I only do that once a year. Well, your Bible reading plan isn't sacred. All right? Jesus is. Why don't you go get to know him a bit? He's found in the Gospels. And I, know God, <laughs> I say the next night, I say, why did I say that? Um, I don't want you to stop reading your Bible plan. <laughs> don't mistake me here. All right. And then, of course, besides reading the Bible and loving the statutes, as he says in verse 80, besides praying, verse 80, besides getting to know the, bless, the blameless one behind, verse 80, review the path to blamelessness, which is the gospel. Do you know how to get to the cross, friends? Do you know how to get there from where you're at? Do you know how to access the forgiveness of Christ? Let me tell you. You ready? Acknowledge your sin and embrace your Savior. Go to Christ in his word, revealed in the scriptures, so that you may have forgiveness of sin offered in Christ God offers you forgiveness for your sin. If you'll just come and acknowledge it and embrace Christ, believe that he is the God of heaven who came to earth to die for you, to live for you, to be raised for you. Turn your back on your own selfish ways, your, your connection to the world, and follow Christ. Review the path to blamelessness. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to embrace a Savior named Jesus. We have to follow him daily. Run from the self-sufficiency that you may possess, from any self-righteousness that you may struggle with, from any pride that would keep you from acknowledging your sin. Run from it. Come to the place where you can acknowledge these things and embrace Christ. One of the the great blessings, uh, friends, of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to serve you in a moment, is that all these things are represented here for you. Your sin is just crawling out at you from the table. Because these elements that are before you, the broken body represented by the broken bread, and the juice that represents the blood all took place because you sin, because you're a sinner. This is the gospel we're talking about here. When you come, it reminds you of your need for Christ. It reminds you of your Savior who is Christ. It reminds you of that one Savior who can only, the only Savior who can minister to your soul which he does here in a unique way at the table. So when you come this morning, acknowledge your sin, embrace your Savior, and come forward in faith knowing that he will meet you here and minister your soul. You can do that.
in the first service I said, I want you to run up here, but then people got excited. So no running in church, okay? You can make your way up here quickly. Um, fly to Christ. Fly to the table. Friends, this is designed by Jesus himself, the elements, to remind you of all his goodness towards you. I'm going to pray uh, for these elements, that God will use them to bless your soul. And as I pray, I'd like the elders to come forward to help me serve and you to prepare your hearts to come forward and be served. And then I'm going to read for you after I pray the, the in, words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11 while you're making your way forward. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we enter your presence by only one door. There's only one way we can enter and experience grace and forgiveness, and that is through the door of Jesus Christ. He told us in John 14 that only he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the judge. No one comes to the creator except through Jesus. And so we come into your presence holding on tightly to Christ, acknowledging our need for his grace, your forgiveness. I pray, Father, that as we come, you would meet us. Your Holy Spirit would meet us at the table and minister to us, would just pour over us the grace of God. God, I ask that you would draw us, woo us to yourself, help us to see your goodness in these elements that we're about to take. We thank you for sending your son who lived a perfect life that we are required to live but can't. And taking that perfect life and crediting it to us who would simply believe on Jesus as a savior. Thank you for not only sending Jesus to live a perfect life, Father, but also to die a sinner's death. A death that we deserve, but that he took. These elements reflect these wonderful truths that we rest upon and hope in. God, minister to us through your spirit now by faith as we come into your presence in this unique way. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the blameless one. Amen.